Connects Talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing a text messaging program improving heart attack survivors' lifestyle and the FDA adding restrictions to the use of the J&J COVID vaccine. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. This week's podcast features World Hypertension Day, which is celebrated every year on May the 17th as well as May Measurement Month. This week's podcast is sponsored by Elego Health Research. Stay tuned to learn more about Elego and their clinical research programs involving patients with hypertension and cardiovascular disease later in the show. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by my X-Talks colleagues and co-hosts, Sydney Perlmutter and Vera Kovacevic. Thanks for coming today. So to mark World Hypertension Day and bring awareness to hypertension and diseases associated with it, namely cardiovascular disease, I'm going to talk about a new study that shows how heart attack survivors could potentially improve lifestyle factors through a text messaging program. An Australian study published in the American Heart Association's flagship peer-reviewed journal Circulation shows that a text messaging program that is designed to remind, support, and motivate heart attack survivors to take their medications helps them improve their weight and also eat more fruits and vegetables. Interestingly, however, the program did not improve medication adherence. Now, according to the results of the study, participants achieved minor improvements in healthy lifestyle measures in a 12-month period. The text messages to improve medication adherence and secondary prevention after acute coronary syndrome study, or text meds, evaluated the effect of the personalized text messaging support program on medication adherence and lifestyle changes among individuals discharged from hospital after a heart attack. Now, these text messages included explainers about blood pressure and cholesterol targets and also included health topics such as physical activity, diet, smoking cessation, as well as mental health after a heart attack. The program also included text messages about the specific medications that patients were taking, explaining how the drugs worked, common side effects, as well as the importance of taking the medications regularly. So, of course, this heart health study is relevant to World Hypertension Day, which, as I mentioned, is observed every year on May the 17th. And the theme of this year's World Hypertension Day is measure your blood pressure accurately, control it, live longer. And the campaign aims to raise awareness about accurate blood pressure measurement methods, especially in low and middle income countries. As well, May is also May Measurement Month, which improves awareness by helping people check their blood pressure for free in May all around the world. Now, of course, high blood pressure is one of the major risk factors for heart attacks and is the number one cause of preventable deaths worldwide. 
Now, one in four heart attack survivors will experience another one, and so this makes it important for individuals to receive education and support to help them manage their risk factors, such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and diabetes. Up to 80% of heart attacks are preventable, and this makes it critical to manage risk factors. So going back to the text meds study from Australia, uh, the study was a multi-center randomized controlled uh, investigation, and it involved more than 1,400 adult heart attack survivors that were hospitalized for a heart attack at 18 public teaching hospitals throughout Australia between 2013 and 2017. Most of the participants were men, about 79%, and the average age was 58 years old. After being discharged from the hospital, all of the study participants received standard secondary heart attack prevention care, which included things like medication, cardiac rehabilitation, and lifestyle counseling as prescribed by their physician. Half of the participants were also randomly assigned to receive the educational, motivational, and supportive text messages on their mobile phone devices. As part of the text messaging program, a health counselor was also available to review and respond to participants' messages or questions. Now, people in the text message intervention group received four text messages per week for the first six months, followed by three messages a week over the next six months. Participants in the study were assessed at six months and 12 months with respect to adherence to guideline recommended classes of medications for secondary heart attack prevention. So the individuals in the study received medication from five different classes of drugs, which included angiotensin-converting enzyme or ACE inhibitors, or angiotensin-2 receptor blockers, uh, also beta blockers, statins, aspirin, and adenosine diphosphate or ADP receptor antagonists. So heart attack survivors in the study were considered to be adherent to their medication if at both the 6 and 12 month uh, follow-up marks, they had taken their medication as prescribed for at least 24 of the past 30 days, which is the equivalent of 80% adherence. Uh, individuals also reported specific lifestyle and health measures, including exercise habits, cholesterol levels, blood pressure readings, BMI, smoking status, as well as nutritional uh, habits. So after the 12-month study period, the researchers found that there was no significant difference between the text message group and the conventional care group in regards to medication adherence. Um, but they did report and found small improvements in lifestyle and behaviors among the text group participants. And so these participants who were receiving the text messages through the text message program were more likely to have a normal BMI or body mass index and a greater likelihood of eating at least five servings of vegetables and two servings of fruit a day. In addition, the researchers also asked participants um, for their feedback um, about the text messaging program. And most participants, about 89%, agreed that the text messaging program was useful. Also, about two-thirds agreed that the text messages reminded them to take their medications and motivated them to change their lifestyle. 
Other metrics included uh, 58% having reported that they started eating healthier and 48% said that they were exercising more regularly due to the text messages. The lead author on the study, Dr. Clara Chow, um, she is the academic director and professor of medicine at Westmead Applied Research Center at the University of Sydney and a cardiologist at Westmead Hospital. She said that even though the study found no significant impact on medication adherence, it does show that a simple, low-cost, and customized text message-based program can deliver systematic post-discharge education and support to people after a heart attack with minimal staff support. And uh, she went on to say that the lack of impact on medication adherence suggests external factors that they did not examine, such as cost, which could have been a factor, and also other barriers need to be understood and addressed in such education programs. Nevertheless, the researchers say that the findings could likely be generalized to other regions, but there were several limitations of the study that do need to be considered. And this includes the fact that the study was not blinded and outcomes were self-reported. Also, the researchers didn't assess medication adherence before the study started because many of the participants would not have been taking the secondary heart attack prevention medications for 30 days when recruited for the study. There could also have been inconsistencies in the timing of routine blood tests, including locations and dates of testing. So, you know, the researchers were very thorough in their analysis, not only of the data, but also in terms of the caveats of the study as well. So nevertheless, so the study shows that, you know, a personalized supportive care post-heart attack um, approach can lead to improvements in lifestyle factors like weight and diet, which can modulate key risk factors for a second heart attack and for heart disease um, like hypertension uh, and diabetes. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this uh, new study um, and this, you know, this text messaging program and how it has potential to help people um, who have survived a heart attack. I think it's like a really good idea. Um, like, you know, when people, I feel like m most people would appreciate the fact that, you know, they can get these reminders on a somewhat regular basis. And then additionally, um, the participants were also able to respond back to the text message and get an actual health counselor yeah. to respond to them. So there was like a real person on the other end. Um, and that was kind of found in the study because I think like almost 90% of people said, hey, like this was a good mm -hmm. idea, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, medi medication adherence was not significantly yeah. improved. <laughs> But, That's kind of the primary sort of yeah. uh, target or endpoint, but and again, I think you know there were a lot of confounding um, factors there. Let's say the technology itself, maybe you know people were not very comfortable using cell phones or you know getting those messages through text and things like that. So there were a lot of confounding factors, and the researchers did address that. But I think nevertheless, it's it's pretty promising using technology in a way to personalize and customize. Um, a supportive care um, kind of a program. And maybe we can see this for other, um, you know, conditions and diseases as well, where I think patients would really appreciate and benefit from this kind of uh, supportive care that doesn't necessarily involve, you know, staying at a hospital or going in to see your doctor regularly. You can have it, you know, at 
your fingertips. And I think we're seeing a lot of this, you know, even through like health wearable technologies and things like that. So yeah, I thought it was a good idea. Yeah, definitely. So I'd be interested to see, you know, further follow-up studies uh, on this program and um, not just for heart attack survivors, but uh, obviously very important for, for heart attack survivors because um, I think the stats are not really good in terms of if you get one heart attack, um, you know, there's a good chance you might get another one. So really that preventive care is crucial for um, for heart attack survivors um, to, you know, to prevent them and help them achieve better health to prevent a second one. Okay, now let's take a break to hear more from our sponsor this week, Elego Health Research. Take a listen to this brief Q&A that I had with Elego. How does Elego Health Research improve clinical research for patients with hypertension and cardiovascular disease? Elego is improving clinical research for patients with hypertension and cardiovascular disease by increasing patient centricity in both study design and protocol implementation. By working within the trusted patient-physician relationship and maintaining engagement with patients throughout the trial process, we're able to ensure a better experience for all involved. What are some approaches that Elego employs to improve or increase patient retention? Elego improves patient retention by putting the patient first. We offer early access to diverse patients who are pre-vetted for protocol inclusion through HIPAA-compliant identified EHR data, allowing sponsors to design protocols that meet the enrolled patient's needs. We also work closely with the patient's trusted physicians and offer education and engagement to further place the patient's needs first. Decentralized and hybrid trials with remote monitoring are being increasingly used now. Does Elego support these clinical trial models? Elego makes it easier for patients, sites, and sponsors to stay connected and engaged throughout the trial, whether it's site-based, siteless, or hybrid. We offer customized and modular infrastructure, technology, and solutions to streamline data collection and management. And this provides tech support from patient ID through study close. Okay, I'm going to move on to our next story, and this has to do with COVID-19 vaccine news. Uh, So the FDA recently put tighter restrictions on the use of Janssen slash Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine um, in light of continuing concerns of the rare side effect of blood clots. Now, the FDA announced that it has limited the authorized use of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine for individuals 18 years of age and older for whom other authorized or approved vaccines are not accessible or clinically appropriate. According to the FDA, um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine would be available to people 18 years and older who choose to receive it because they are unable to receive any other COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, So the FDA said that the tighter restrictions on the vaccine come after uh, it conducted an updated analysis and investigation of reported cases, which revealed that the risk of the rare blood clots, which are known as, or the condition, which is known as thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome, or TTS, quote, warrants limiting the, start that again. Quote, warrants limiting the authorized use of the vaccine. 
Now, TTS involves both uh, the occurrence of rare and potentially life-threatening blood clots in combination with low levels of blood platelets. And according to the FDA, symptoms of TTS appear about one to two weeks following administration of the vaccine. And symptoms include things like shortness of breath, chest pain, swelling in the legs, persistent abdominal pain, neurological symptoms like headaches or blurred vision, or petechiae, which are red spots on the skin outside the vaccinated area. However, overall, the FDA maintains that the benefits of the vaccine continue to outweigh any risks associated with the one-dose shot in people 18 years of age and older. Now, TTS is a very rare side effect of the Janssen, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The incidence has been about three cases for every one million doses of vaccine administered. Now, the highest rate, eight cases in one million, has been in women uh, between the ages of 30 to 49 years. In a recent update of the vaccine's fact sheet, the FDA reported that 15% of TTS cases have been fatal. So the CDC maintains that mRNA vaccines, such as those from Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, are the preferred shots for COVID-19. Uh, The CDC says that this means that Janssen's and Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is intended for people who have had a severe allergic reaction to an mRNA vaccine or have any known allergies against an ingredient uh, in the mRNA vaccines. It also includes people who may have limited access to mRNA COVID-19 vaccines that would prevent them from getting vaccinated against COVID-19 and also those who simply want to get the Janssen, Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Now, if we go back, um, Janssen and Johnson and Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine received emergency use authorization from the FDA in February of 2021. So Dr. Peter Marks, who is the director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, said in a statement that they've been closely monitoring the Janssen COVID-19 vaccine and the occurrence of TTS following its administration and have used updated information from their safety surveillance systems to revise the emergency use authorization. Um, He went on to say that the FDA does recognize that the Janssen COVID-19 vaccine still has a role in the current pandemic response in the U.S. and across the global community. However, today's action demonstrates the the robustness of um, our safety surveillance systems and our commitment to ensuring that science and data guide our actions. So Janssen and Johnson and Johnson's, um, you know, struggles with this COVID-19 vaccine began pretty early. So the FDA put a halt on the company's shot just six weeks after it had been authorized due to concerns of the rare blood clots. However, that pause was lifted after about 10 days, with the FDA having said that the vaccine's benefits outweigh the risks. But the FDA at the time did attach a warning on its use. So Janssen and Johnson and Johnson's vaccine was the third COVID-19 vaccine to have received FDA FDA authorization in the U.S., And it was positioned to be a rather good alternative to the mRNA vaccines as an inexpensive and convenient vaccine because it's a single dose uh, regimen. 
However, unfortunately, because of the concerns of the blood clots, um, uh, only about 18.7 million of the shots were administered compared to the more than 340 million doses of Pfizer's vaccine and the more than 217 million doses of Moderna's vaccine that have been dispensed in the U.S. so far. Now, last year, sales of Janssen and Johnson & Johnson's vaccine reached $2.4 billion, and the company estimated sales to hit between $3 and $3.5 billion this year. However, sales have been lackluster so far, with the vaccine having only brought in about $457 million in the first quarter this year, which is well b- below Wall Street's uh, projection of $785 million. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this new development around uh, the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. Um, It's unfortunate, I think, because, you know, we were all looking forward to a one-dose shot. And especially in, you know, developing countries, that would have been um, such a a, a great, you know, game changer in terms of um, cost and access. So this is kind of like a bummer, but I think, you know, the FDA is just proceeding with caution and acting out of an abundance of caution. So is there a way to know whether you're at a higher risk of developing Mm, a blood clot? That's a really good question. And I think, um, was it last year? I think I spoke to a company that was actually developing a test where they could actually... um, identify people at a higher risk for blood clots and this Mm. they developed that test in light of you know the situation with some of the COVID-19 vaccines Mm -hmm. I forget what the name of that company was but I can definitely look it up um, and let you know later but it was uh, really interesting because they were um, you know in the field of uh, hematology and looking at uh, trying to identify other hematologic disorders and so uh, blood disorders and so when this issue of um, you know, blood clots arising after administration of some of these COVID-19 vaccines, they pivoted and were able to use their platforms to develop a test to, um, you know, predict whether certain people, which people might, or predict, predict whether an individual was at higher risk for the blood clots. I think also after, you know, those rare incidents happened, though, people, started to mistrust or maybe get nervous about getting that particular vaccine. So I'm not surprised that uh, they administered fewer shots than Pfizer and Mm. Moderna. Um, And I also was wondering, you know, who would be the individuals who would prefer to just get the Johnson & Johnson shot? I don't, um, yeah, I'm not really sure I've heard of anyone gunning for that one. So that's a great question, uh, Sydney. There currently is no authorized um, test, to my knowledge, that can be used to, to predict whether somebody is at a greater risk of developing um, TTS or this rare blood clot syndrome after vaccination. So there were a couple of companies I do remember last year, and I spoke to one of them um, that you know they were trying to actually develop tests to help. Um, in the diagnosis of these blood clots. And I think they were also toying with the idea of trying to identify individuals um, at greater risk for the blood clots as well. But I don't think that um, those kinds of things really got anywhere. So yeah, currently there's no authorized test to, to, to determine somebody's risk for them. 
All right, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media. Email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.